The theme of this talk is spirituality or psychism, a Rosicrucian dilemma. In many ways it is a testimony of a personal journey out of the darkness of ignorance into the light of understanding. As such, it expresses some of my personal reflections on the work of a Rosicrucian, particularly in the context of the core Rosicrucian documents, the farmer and the confessio. But first, let me establish a context. My formative years, particularly my pre-teen years, were full of strange and supernatural events. My family could not or would not engage with me when I tried to discuss them. And my friends, being of a similar age, just made a game of it. Consequently, I spent my earliest years trying to make sense of two worlds, both of which were incomprehensible. Sometime before I started school, probably at the end of my fourth year, I had become fascinated with the interior of our local Catholic church. At some point, my parents had taken me into it. And because it wasn't very far from home, I often wandered off to spend time inside it. It was always open. The atmosphere inside the church moved me in ways that I did not then understand. But I always felt comfortable there, sitting in the silence, enjoying the smell of candle wax and incense, and soaking up an atmosphere I felt I'd known forever. The sense of wonder it inspired then, and now, has never left me. In my late teens, I began to meet people on the fringes of the esoteric community. Most of them were interested in Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism predominantly. There seemed to be lots of gurus, swamis, Buddhist monks and the like, which was very exciting. But there were also people interested in what was claimed to be Western mysticism. It was to this area that I was drawn like a moth to the flame. And it was in this area that I consciously began my spiritual journey. Most of the people I encountered then impressed me with their familiarity of arcane knowledge concerning astral worlds and incredible spiritual beings. But it was a world to all intents and purposes close to me. And inevitably, like others before me, I was compelled to find another way into it and see for myself. At first, the very idea of astral worlds and spiritually superior highly evolved beings made my head giddy with the possibility of being able to partake in their mysteries. However, the more I engaged with such esotericism, the more obvious it became that I was engaging in little more than astral tourism. There appeared to be no significant difference between a trip to another country and an astral journey to another world. You know, it seemed to me that communing with the deceased or with superior beings, was in principle no different to communing with strangers in this world over the telephone, for example. Initially this puzzled me, and I spent a long time thinking about it, until I realised that I had been taking for granted the notion that the spiritual and the psychic and the ideas they represented were interchangeable. And with this realisation arose the question, how close were they really? Are they synonyms, or is there a difference? And if there is a difference, what distinguishes them? This led me to another question, simple but full of implications. What do these terms really mean? I eventually came to understand that psychism meant engaging with the supernatural world. It was an understanding 
supported by my earliest experience and observations, and reinforced by local wisdom, hearsay if you will. In my youth, mediums, the term psychic in channels came much later, were always a big draw. People would travel great distances to consult a medium whose credentials were sufficiently marvellous. As time passed, I noticed that there was a quiet but determined competition among mediums to be the most interesting, and therefore the most popular on the circuit. It wasn't enough to be gifted with psychic abilities, such as clairvoyance. Successful mediums also had to have the right connections in the supernatural world. At the time, it seemed to me that mediums were as nothing unless they were in communication with a really special disincarnate person. A well-known historic figure was preferred, someone like Mary Magdalene, a Tibetan hidden master, or even an Egyptian pharaoh. They all attracted big audiences. Alternatively, a highly evolved being from another world or dimension would be a very advantageous connection. In the 1960s, there were a few celebrity mediums doing the rounds, but not that many. However, by the 1970s, more and more people emerged as psychics or channels, claiming to be in communication with beings from a higher state of consciousness. Transcended masters and saints were popular for a while, especially those who had an urgent message for humanity, which was usually a negative message, informing humankind that unless we modified our behaviour, we were all doomed, or that our civilization was doomed, but the new age would then unfold into a glorious future. I recall attending a lecture in the 1980s, given by Elizabeth Clare Prophet. She was, according to her own report, in close and frequent communication with Joseph of Arimathea, the angel Gabriel, and the alchemist the Comte Saint-Germain, to name but a few. In the 1990s, that format changed. People began channeling or communicating with minor deities, often pagan, or frequently personifying the latest star to emerge, the goddess, in one of her many forms. And so it goes on. Many messengers, but nothing new. I do wonder what will come next. Astral travelling was, and I suspect always will be, a major attraction. I remember a lecture about this subject. It was delivered in Bristol in the mid-1970s by the well-known occultist called Douglas Baker. More than 150 people were seated in a university lecture theatre. At one stage in the proceedings, the attention of the audience was flagging, and Douglas Baker noticed this. I watched him. I watched him gather his thoughts, and with increased emphasis and conviction, state that no one was free from sexual seduction on the astral, and then proceeded to explain how this was so. Full concentration was resumed immediately. At that time, it seemed to me that psychism and spirituality were invariably linked, and that psychic ability was considered by many to be a true sign of spirituality. Many of the books available were either reports of the amazing powers of certain people or primers for developing psychic power, such as clairvoyance, reading auras, healing people, and of course becoming astrally mobile. A delusion, possibly, or perhaps a sickness of the soul, I believe is far more widespread today than during the 1960s. The ability to commune with beings from other worlds, to travel freely in those worlds, 
to analyse souls and predict their future, has ever been, and probably still is, close to many people's hearts, and I can think of no reason to argue with them about it. But I'm not so sure about the magical arts, particularly casting spells, which is essentially manipulating the environment and those living in it by magical and other means, which appears to be increasingly popular today. There are ethical issues involved that few seem to consider important or relevant. For example, is there any difference between a successful love potion or spell and date rape? The lack of information leads me to suppose that it is okay so long as you don't get found out. However, this wasn't the case in the ancient world, particularly in the Greco-Roman era, where manipulating others through magical means was punishable by death. Another feature of my formative years was the role of esoteric orders and their many and various magicians. In the early 1970s, the region I lived in was thick with them, and astral wars were enthusiastically engaged in, much like gang wars are waged today. And although lethal weapons such as firearms were probably not employed, the use of magic was endemic, as was the use of psychological intimidation. Doors and windows were often daubed, daubed with magical signs and symbols, and excrement was occasionally found on the doorstep, or even in the letterbox. I recall an old friend from that time, describing how a certain magician had, on one occasion, threatened him with a nasty end by magical means. My friend's response was, I think, sweetly pragmatic. He informed the magician that if his comfort was disturbed, in any way via magical means, he could look forward to a good beating, and not on the astral either. I believe his comfort remains undisturbed to this day. The classic scenario in the world of esoteric orders was the conflict between beastly black magicians seeking to destroy decent white magicians, who were typically exponents of the Golden Dawn and derivative orders, inevitably representing the forces of light and goodness. Today there are many more esoteric orders establishing themselves in the field, building magnificent egregores to re-establish universal order and rule the world as it should be ruled. The players change, but like an old soap, the play goes on and on, a phantasmagoric procession weaving itself through time upon the tapestry of life, leading souls in a never-ending fairy carnival. Whatever the truth may be, it became obvious to me that whether in this world or in the astral world, such endeavours, however fantastic, are still a part of duality and consequently subject to the laws governing space, time and fate, and therefore could offer no greater opportunity for spiritual development than any other activity, doing household chores, for example. However, in my early years I had no way of knowing if any of it was true, Consequently, in the beginning, I ran with the crowd following the carnival. But now, in my eighth decade, I see clearly that although psychic or supernatural powers are real, they are not of primary importance. On the contrary, using them to build an empire to manipulate others, regardless of their own inclinations, is at best naive and selfish, and often immoral, if not evil. In due course, I joined a small Christian contemplative order, and with the assistance of my teacher, 
I began to understand that the experience of different worlds, astral or otherwise, counted for little. I learned from him that self-knowledge is far more important. Rather than seeking to explore the astral or learning to read auras, he encouraged me to explore my own being, to distinguish between the discursive nature of a self born of the material world and the permanent reality that is the substrate of existence. The first, I soon learned, is a creature of duality, driven by desire and forever chasing the phantoms, the phantoms that dance before the mind's eye, be they physical or astral. The second is unity, the spiritual presence of God and the ground of being for all creatures. It was to this polarization of being, a polarization of essence and form, of self and not-self, that my attention was directed, and as I later discovered, the farmer also demonstrates how important the same truth was to the first Rosicrucians. On the basis that a delusion, no matter how commonplace or popular, is still a delusion, I think this is the right place to qualify what I mean by spirituality and psychism. They are, after all, the main theme of this talk. I think most of us would agree that they are reasonably common terms, but do they have a common meaning? The word psychism is derived from the Greek psyche, which is a term that was and still is commonly used for the soul. The best description I have found concerning the psyche is an allegorical tale concerning the evolution of the soul, told by Apuleius in his book Metamorphosis or Golden Ass. This story tells of a beautiful princess called Psyche, whose beauty was so marvellous that Venus, the goddess of love, was threatened by it. Thus she sent her son Cupid to use one of his faithful arrows to direct Psyche's affection towards all that is base and worthless. However, Cupid, instead of fulfilling his mother's wishes, fell in love with Psyche and through his divine powers transported her to his celestial palace where she became his wife. However, in fear of his mother's anger, Cupid only visited Psyche in the darkness of night and left before the dawn. Thus Psyche neither knew the name nor the identity of her lover. A Cupid had warned her, he had warned Psyche never to seek his identity. But Psyche, persuaded by the dark mischief of her jealous sisters, who had convinced her that Cupid was an hideous monster hiding his true form in the darkness, lit a lamp as her husband slept to see if this was true. Unfortunately, some of the oil fell from the lamp onto the shoulder of Cupid, who awoke and admonished and then divorced Psyche leaving her desolate. Thus began Psyche's long and desperate search for her beloved, all the while hunted and tormented by the goddess Venus. After many trials and tribulations, including overcoming Hades, she finally achieves immortality and was reunited with her beloved Cupid. Personally, I like this story because it describes in metaphorical terms the soul's evolution out of the material world of the senses into the spiritual world. However, in more prosaic terms, the shorter Oxford Dictionary describes psychism as the doctrine or theory of the existence of forces unexplainable by physical science 
in connection with spiritistic phenomena. Not really very helpful in my opinion. Alternatively, Madame Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, defined psychism as a term now used to denote very loosely every kind of mental phenomena. For example, mediumship and the higher sensitiveness, hypnotic receptivity and inspired prophecy, simple clairvoyance in the astral light and real divine seership. Not much better, I fear. Perhaps the most revealing thing about both definitions is that they describe psychism in terms of phenomena and the phenomenal world, whether it be the coarse material world we perceive with our senses or whether it be some astral ethereal counterpart that we experience with the mind. In either case, they are definitions rooted in the discursive mind born of duality. In my experience, this notion of the essence being formless is best expressed in Kabbalistic terms. Kabbalistic thought proposes that creation emerges in four successive and increasingly material modes, from a formless and invisible essence known as Ein Sofer. The first mode, or world, is called Atzeluth, the archetypal world. It is the world in which the spiritual essence coalesces into the divine archetypes, which are the basis of creation. The second world is Brea, the creative world. It is the world in which the differentiated essence, that is the divine archetypes, becomes dynamic, but have yet to take form. The third world is yet zero, the formative world. It is in this world that the archetypes begin to take form, as in the mind of an architect or designer, a subtle ethereal form that is not usually perceptible to the senses, but is perceivable to the mind. The fourth world is a sire. It is the world of matter, wherein the archetypes have their most concrete form, a form that is perceptible to the senses. It is in this world that Adam and Eve were given tunics of skin. See Genesis 3.21 This concept of a transcendent and formless spiritual essence is also found in Neoplatonic thought, which proposes three principal modes of being. The one is the infinite, the absolute, the source and ground of existence. It is unity, pure and simple. The divine nous is the divine spirit mind, in which exists the archetypal ideas and prototypes of creation. The world soul is the model of creation itself. It consists of a celestial part that contemplates the divine nous and a terrestrial part which is the realm most commonly experienced by humanity and consists of the material world of the senses and the ethereal world, most commonly known as the astral. The highest part, the celestial, is capable of rising above the material and ethereal world to contemplate the divine nous, which constitutes the goal of many esoteric systems. There are other models that demonstrate this point, but the Kabbalistic and the Neoplatonic models referred to here were reasonably well known to the esoteric community in the 16th century and are sufficient to demonstrate the spiritual and the psychic being a distinction between form and essence. It is clear then that throughout history the custodians of the tradition 
whose ranks according to the farmer must include the first three generations of Rosicrucians, recognized that there is a distinction to be made between form and essence, and that the spiritual is concerned with essence and the psychic with form, which has many gradations of manifestation or materiality. It seems to me that if there is one thing above all else that distinguishes essence and form, it is the concept of unity and duality, that which is spiritual pertaining to essence and unity, and that which is psychic pertaining to form and duality, and all that such implies, including the infinity of worlds and creatures who inhabit them. Page 62 and 63 of the Confessio clearly demonstrates that the authors were conscious of this distinction, and that the realm of form is little more than a hall of mirrors, full of delusory hallucinations, no more spiritual than watching TV. Whereas the great work, to which all true Rosicrucians are by definition committed, is primarily concerned with the essence and not the form. This may be discerned in the farmer, which is clearly concerned with the spiritual life rather than the phenomenal world. It seems patently obvious to me that the main objective of the farmer was to demonstrate, albeit in a veiled manner, an understanding of the spiritual nature of the great work, inspiring aspirants in the opening years of the 17th century to focus on the mysteries of the spiritual life rather than squabbling over the theological and political issues that dominated the poisonous atmosphere of religious hatred that polluted Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries. This the farmer does, using metaphoric and allegorical language of Kabbalah and alchemy, following the precedents established in the ancient world of using stories as allegories of the spiritual life, transmitted in such a way as to convey and protect the integrity of important spiritual ideas by embodying them in a memorable tale. Examples of such methods can be seen in the Mosaic books such as the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt and Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai, or in non-Christian texts such as the Argonauts' quest for the Golden Fleece. Indeed, as I understand it, Apuleius devised the story of the metamorphosis as an allegory to circumvent the taboo against speaking publicly about the sacred mysteries of Aloysius. He even embedded within it the story of Cupid and Psyche, which is an echo or reflection of the soul's quest for redemption, as portrayed in the mysteries by Persophony. I think he sailed very close to the wind with that one. There are many other examples of the allegorical method available. Gretien de Troyes' Arthurian romances, Dante's Paradiso, and possibly Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress come to mind, as do many of the alchemical texts that were circulating in the late medieval era. Yet in their own way, by their very existence, they all support the validity of the farmer to stand not merely as an ancient political manifesto, a historical curiosity, but as an allegorical text full of symbols of the spiritual life. To those who think themselves Rosicrucians, but have not studied the farmer, having only read and listened to scholarly opinions concerning it, I must say that with all due respect, you should study it. It's well worth the effort. It is dripping with enigmatic and wonderful references to the mysteries of alchemy and Kabbalah. Such references stand unchanged, 
as fresh as the day they were composed. The Rosicrucians who discovered them have in the main kept silent about them. Consequently, they were not reinvented in the late 18th or 19th centuries as so many other symbols were, but stand as an unsullied testimony to the people who composed them and the era in which they were composed. They speak of something that lies beyond the world of the senses. For example, consider the curious nature of the following passage from page 3 of The Farmer. Our brother, Christian Rosenkreutz, a German, the chief and origin of our fraternity, hath much and long time laboured, who by reason of his poverty, although descended from noble parents, in the fifth year of his age, was placed in a cloister where he had learned indifferently the Greek and Latin tongues, who, upon his earnest desire and request, being yet in his growing years, was associated to a brother P.A.L., who had determined to go to the Holy Land. Now we have a choice. We either accept the literal reading of the text, that a poor five-year-old boy was given over to a monastery and began learning Latin and Greek, who sought the guidance of a more senior member, who incidentally was prepared to take him to the Holy Land. This would make Christian Rosenkreutz a monastic and a Catholic, which is possible but unlikely. Alternatively, if the words are considered in metaphorical terms, they suggest that Christian Rosenkreutz was an initiated member of an esoteric brotherhood. It is even possible that both may be true, that he was both a monastic and an initiated member of an esoteric brotherhood, which is not as far-fetched as it might first appear, concerning which I refer you to an extensive work of Lynn Thorndike, The History of Magic and Experimental Science, who makes abundantly clear just how involved some members of the monastic orders were in the exploration of the esoteric. Whatever the whole truth may be, it seems to me that one thing is certain. This passage is not saying Christian Rosenkreutz was a five-year-old infant when he entered the cloisters, but that he was young in the work, and, when Brother P.A.L. is considered in metaphorical terms, he may be seen as a senior member of the order, who assisted Christian Rosenkreutz on his spiritual journey to the Holy Land, which in itself is a metaphor of the Kingdom of Heaven, the spiritual goal of the mystic and the contemplative. That brother P.A.L. died in Cyprus, and Christian Rosenkreuz continued on his journey, is also suggestive. Either the author is alluding to death in alchemical terms, suggesting that Christian Rosenkreuz had begun the process of spiritual alchemy, in which the death, the quiescence of the discursive mind, no matter how inspired, is absolutely necessary, in which case Brother P.A.L. is being used as a device to symbolise a form of an inspired intellect, John the Baptist, for example. Or he may be alluding to the fact that the teacher can only ever be a signpost and that the student must ultimately make the journey alone. Consider the following passage, taken from page 6 of the farmer. At Fez he did get acquaintance with those which are commonly called the elementary inhabitants, who revealed unto him many of their secrets. I don't know about you, but this passage leaves me with several questions. The first being, what does the author mean by elementary inhabitants? 
I think we can discount the elementary inhabitants being masters of the art, showing one so young their secrets. But is he alluding to the elementals of Paracelsus? The sylphs, the undines, the salamanders and the gnomes, for example. Or is he suggesting something else? He continues, Of these of Fez, he often did confess that their magia was not altogether pure, and that their Kabbalah was defiled with their religion. But notwithstanding, he knew how to make good use of the same. The question is, with what major and Kabbalah did he compare that of Fez? How was it that one so young, if indeed he was, and I quote, knew how to make good use of the same? Whatever the answer may be, these words are not the words describing a youngster or a novice alone in a strange land. More interesting, or perhaps I should say more revealing, is the following. On page 11 of The Farmer, Christian Rosenkrotz is said to have built a neat habitation, which I'm sure is a Sancti Spiritus, but more of that later. In this habitation, he ruminated his voyage and philosophy and reduced them together into a true memorial. In my understanding, this is a reference to the discipline of meditation. It's a fundamental undertaking in the great work. But more interesting is what follows. After five years, he drew out of his first cloister, in itself a puzzle, three of his brethren and bound them to himself. Now this may mean exactly what it says, that three brothers left their monastery to form a new order with Christian Rosenkreutz. But it also suggests an alchemical allegory concerning the three essential alchemical principles of sulphur, mercury and salt. Alchemy assumes the existence of three principles in all things, corresponding with the threefold division of man into body, soul and spirit. These principles are mercury, sulphur and salt. Sulphur represents the spiritus primus. Its nature is fire and is understood to be the analogue of the soul. To it is attributed the sun, the conscious self and the will. Mercury represents the materia prima. Its nature is water, which in alchemy is understood to be the spirit. This is not the spirit of Christian theology, which denotes the divine immortal element of man, but the vital force that is carried in the air, otherwise called the waters of life. It is passive, malleable and volatile. To it is attributed the moon. Salt represents the body, the material form resulting from the combination of mercury and sulphur. These three principles, acting together, constitute the nature of all things, including man. Alchemy also understands the universe to be a unity, and that all material bodies emerge from that unity. These component elements being different forms of one matter and, therefore, convertible into one another. This theory may be seen as an analogy concerning the soul's evolution and regeneration, an evolution from an unregenerate state, symbolized by the metal lead, to a spiritual regenerate state, symbolized by gold. From a personal perspective, I was taught to think of sulphur as prima spiritus, corresponding with the divine nous, and to think of quicksilver as materia prima, corresponding with the world's soul. It is through the conjunction of them both, symbolized by the alchemical marriage of the king and queen, 
that the world soul gives form to the archetypes contained in potentia within the divine nous. The materialized forms of the archetypes and all forms derived from them are represented by the element of salt. These three principles also have parallels in Kabbalah. The three mother letters, Aleph, Mem and Shin, correspond with the elements of air, water and fire, and in principle act in much the same way as sulphur, mercury and salt to fire, water and earth. The more I look at the farmer and the confessio, the more I see an interesting structure woven between the lines of the narrative. These core Rosicrucian texts do not simply form a mandate for magic and experimental science, although many have taken it as such. As an expression of the aspirations of a tumultuous era, the narrative of the farmer is interesting in its own terms, but it also has hidden depths that veil a subtext concerning the spiritual transformation of human nature and as such it is invaluable. As far as my understanding of such things allow, I perceive the language to be a symbolic language of allegory and metaphor steeped in esoteric thought, part mythological, part alchemical and part Kabbalistic. But when all is said and done, a recognisable process of spiritual transformation is implicit in the text of the farmer, and it seems to me that the purpose of the text is to act as a vehicle for this process, a process that is concealed using allegory and metaphor of sign and symbol only to be discovered by a persistent and reflective mind. This process appears to be embodied in the farmer in four stages or phases. First, the apprenticeship. Second, the building of the Sancti Spiritus. Third, the interior life. And fourth, charity. The first, the apprenticeship, is described at the beginning of the farmer. It portrays our Christian Rosenkreuz on a journey of discovery in the world. But what world is he exploring? That's left for the reader to discover. At first glance, it seems to be a quaint record of an adventure. But closer examination reveals it to be an allegory, an allegory of a student learning the basic curriculum of the work and maturing sufficiently to pass through a labyrinth of esoterica until he arrives at a place of self-knowledge and is thus able to begin the construction of the Sancti Spiritus. The second the building of the Sancti Spiritus describes Christian Rosenkreuz building a spiritual body, but only after he has understood through experience that the world has little interest in his discoveries is he motivated to do so. Christian Rosenkreuz learns the hard way that the world is only interested in securing control over the resources of the world of the senses and maintaining the status quo, personal power being everything. The third, the interior life, describes Christian Rosenkreuz engaging in meditation, exploring his spiritual journey thus far, and reflecting upon the philosophy of the spiritual life. Mathematics was drawn to the reader's attention as a major subject of his exploration. But I can't help wondering just what the author of The Farmer means by mathematics. Did the author mean the philosophy of number? Or did the author mean the study of Gematria, to unravel the mysteries of Scripture? I say this because the Confessio states on page 49 
Wherefore we do admonish everyone to read diligently and continually the Holy Bible. For he that taketh all his pleasure therein, he shall know that he prepares for himself an excellent way to come into our fraternity. For as this is the whole sum and content of our rule, that every letter or character which is in the world ought to be learned and regarded well. So those are like unto us, and are very near allied unto us, who do make the Holy Bible a rule of their life, and an aim and an end of all their studies. Yea, so let it be a compendium and content of the whole world, and not only to have it continually in the mouth, but to know how to apply it and direct the true understanding of it to all times and ages of the world. This suggests to me a Kabbalistic exegesis of biblical texts, using mathematical systems such as Gematria, Temura and Notalicon. And rightly so, for such systems are profound meditative tools, capable of revealing subtle layers of meaning in the scriptures that are not obvious to the rational mind. Furthermore, the description of the vault of Christian Rosencross gives a marvellous insight to the nature of the Sancti Spiritus, a description that is itself an allegorical puzzle. It has fascinated esoterically-minded people for the last 400 years or more, and has been the central feature of many esoteric orders for more than a century. However, I am inclined to accept the description of the vault as an elucidation of the interior world of the soul from a biblical perspective, an internal cosmology expressed in both Kabbalistic and alchemical terms. The fourth I call charity. I call charity because it is concerned with the work of a Rosicrucian, a Rosicrucian living in the world. At its heart is the dynamic of love, that is to say, charity, and it is supported by the practice of humility, by living quietly and invisibly in the world, without seeking fame, recompense, fortune or power over others. This rule combined with the three previous phases establishes a quintessentially Christian model for living a spiritual life, rooted as it is in the formula established by Jesus Christ. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. See Mark 12, 30, 31. For those who have the eyes to see, this quotation is a cipher that directs the aspirant to learn how to love, to seek entrance into the sacred precincts of the heart, to learn how to govern the soul, to learn how to direct the mind, and to harness the strength and power of the psyche, all of which are to be directed to the service of God and humanity, but not to the service of self. To conclude, I opened this address by saying that the theme of this paper is in many ways a testimony of a personal journey out of the darkness of ignorance into the light of understanding. It is entitled Spirituality or Psychism, a Rosicrucian Dilemma, because it is ever so easy to lose oneself in the chemistry of the psychic world, which is the world of form after all. In my understanding, the dilemma for the aspiring Rosicrucian is simply this, if the great work is the spiritual regeneration, of both the race and the individual, how much of a Rosicrucian's time should be given to chasing the ephemera that is psychism, and how much should be given to seeking the spiritual? 
Put another way, what is the core endeavour of a Rosicrucian? Is it to discover the essence underlying form, or is it to explore the science of form? This is the dilemma I believe has always been central to Rosicrucianism, and I believe it is a dilemma that will continue to present itself to each new generation of aspirant as they seek to understand the spiritual dimension of the soul. Finally, although the Rosicrucians hid their personal identity, they did not hide the fact that they were professed Christians, or that they had interests in alchemy, magic, Kabbalah and healing. Furthermore, their calling, along with their esoteric interests, have influenced the pattern and shape of spiritual and esoteric endeavours in Europe and beyond for centuries. Their involvement with magic, alchemy and Kabbalah has frequently been the main focal point of public interest and endeavour, not all of which might be called wise. Yet, while people ignore the spiritual message of the Varman and Confessio, and continue to take literally what has been outlined in these texts, to seek the magical power and control over nature implied therein, then I see little changing in the future. Thank you.